0: Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, we had planned to bring you a conversation with Israeli rapper Nissim Black, but that will have to wait because of a more pressing issue that arose on the ABC talk show The View. The ABC network suspended one of its co-hosts, comedian and actress Whoopi Goldberg, for insisting that the Holocaust was not about race, but about man's inhumanity to man. When her co-host pushed back, saying the Holocaust was driven by an ideology of white supremacy, she doubled down. But these are two white groups of people. The comments were part of a conversation among the show's co-hosts about a Tennessee school board's decision to ban a Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust. In the end, the star's remarks sparked as much outrage as the book ban. But Whoopi Goldberg's views are not uncommon. Here to discuss why and what we can do about that is writer Daniela Greenbaum, an Emmy award-winning producer and, until last November, a producer on The View, who recently wrote about this topic for The Washington Post. Daniela, welcome to People of the Pod.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Daniela, you worked on The View for two years, between 2019 and 2021, and helped produce these kinds of conversations on quote-unquote hot topics. In the movies, you see producers whispering, if not shouting, into the anchors' earpieces. What do you wish you could have said in Whoopi Goldberg's ear during Monday's show?
1: Yeah, you know, I think in general and this is common to most live shows, you know, the thinking is if you're going to have a line from the control room into kind of a live show in a host's ear, you know, you want to be using that as minimally as possible. You don't want to distract. You don't want to interfere. You kind of want to let things unfold as they're going. I think in that moment, if I had had a line into her ear, even just out of trying to protect her and the show, in that moment, I would have just said, Whoopi, um, we'll discuss this later in depth. You got to trust me. This is not how I would phrase this. This is not correct. And, you know, I would move away from this point. But honestly, I think there's actually a tremendous upside to the fact that she said what she said the next day. People who watch The View got this, you know, seven or eight minute kind of lesson in anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and just how to think about these issues that they would not normally have had. So you are the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors.
0: You've said that you have a great respect for your colleagues at The View. You you hadn't wanted to write about it, but you couldn't let this go, and you felt compelled to address it. Why were Whoopi's comments so problematic?
1: Yeah, so I think there are people who make their entire living in media off watching The View, waiting for something to be said that's, you know, a mistake or an error, and then slapping a headline on it and making it go viral. You know, it's a live show. People make mistakes. They misspeak. That's kind of the nature of the show. I am so hesitant to weigh in, talk about anything that happens on the show, even issues that I care about when something like that happens because, you know, having worked there, I know how it can feel from the inside of just, you know, this incredibly unfortunate, annoying tendency for certain media outlets to kind of come for them, come for us at the time, you know, no matter what. But, you know, I think Whoopi's a a lovely person. I think she genuinely meant it when she said, you know, I'm sorry for any hurt that I caused. But I also watched her go on the Colbert Report, and I think what's troubling is she didn't misspeak. This is something she really believes, and that's not necessarily her fault. I think she's regurgitating a poison that's in the air and that we need to combat. And so where I felt I wanted to weigh in, it wasn't even really about Whoopi. It wasn't about the view It was much bigger than that. It was the fact that this ideology exists and has become really common and really just all too prevalent because I don't think, you know, she went on the show that day and came up with this idea herself. This is something that she has been hearing and that is out there and that she's repeating. Can you be a little bit more specific, just kind of unpacking that
0: ideology for our listeners, what what
1: she has absorbed
0: yeah, I wrote about this
1: for The Washington Post yacht year, had a great piece about it um in the Atlantic for his his newsletter, Dieepstetl, which is just amazing. In general, I think Americans can be extremely myopic in trying to squeeze, you know, other cultures, other ideas, other conceptions, other traditions, other everything into how we conceive of things. And we are a really new country in the grand scheme of history. We're a newborn and our conflicts and our ideologies and our language is by no means robust enough to actually include everything that's come before us. And Jews as a category, it's not simple. We're a race sometimes, we're a people, we're a religion, we're a culture, we're a nationality, we're a lot of things. And we don't neatly fit into categories that came centuries and and thousands of years after. And so, I think where we see this problem is in this attempt to fit Jews into sort of this white-black dichotomy that exists in this country. And, you know, Jews, well, let me actually unpack that for a second. I was about to say Jews are light-skinned. That's not even true. There's, you know, obviously Jews of every stripe and color. I personally am a Jew with white skin. That does not mean that I am categorically white in this white-black framing that exists in America. I'm neither of those things. It's not a box that exists for us. And we could actually be having a really meaningful conversation about the fact that every time a Jew takes an SAT test or applies to college or does everything, there is no box that we can check that adequately reflects our identity. And we're not the only minority that has that issue. And we could be talking about that. But instead, we're in this like awful back and forth where we're just trying to squeeze ourselves into categories that don't actually have room for us.
0: I agree. That was certainly a point that rubbed people the wrong way, the fact that you know she was trying to fit Jews into a preconceived category because there are so many different ways to be Jewish. But many people also took issue with Whoopi Goldberg kind of seeming to dismiss what drove Hitler, right? I mean, after the Germans lost World War One, Hitler and the Nazis cast Jews as a race. The idea of allowing Jews equal rights or allowing them to intermarry and pollute the pure Aryan blood. I mean, if you had Jewish grandparents, you were a Jew, and converting to Christianity didn't change that. So I thought Stephen Colbert did a really good job. You mentioned her appearance on The Colbert Show later that day. The outrage really grew after what she said on The Colbert Show. They had issues with ethnicity, not with race,
1: because most of the Nazis were white people, and most of the people they were attacking were white people. So, to me, I'm thinking, how can you say it's about race if you are fighting each other? This was not about people fighting each other. This was one people who were persecuting and, you know, murdering another group of people, and that group of people was trying to stay alive. So, that's not two groups of people fighting each other. But beyond that, to your point, you know, the Nazis were so racial. The first words in Mouse, which is the book that they were talking about, the first words are a quote from Hitler, which talks about how the Jews are certainly a race, but they are not human. And if you look at any of the Nazis' materials from the time, it is so, so incredibly racial. It quantifies how much Jewish blood you need in order to be a Jew. It talks about what Jews look like, what color our hair is, how long our noses were, the shapes of our skulls. One of the reasons people were really upset is that historically the Jewish community and the black community have been... Incredible allies because we have so many shared struggles. And when you look at the Nuremberg laws and you look at the laws in the Jim Crow South, there are so, so many parallels. And to take
0: that one step further, many people don't know that Nazis were directly inspired by those Jim Crow laws. At least one historian has said they debated whether to introduce segregation in Germany, but decided that since Jews were in positions of power and leadership, that didn't do enough to get them out of the
1: way. The idea that someone could just look at the Holocaust and not see those same kinds of ideas, I think that was really hurtful for people because it just felt like, why wouldn't we view these two things in similar context and and work together to combat them? Why is there this attempt to continuously put Jews in a separate box and a separate category? In fact,
0: you talked about the stories you've heard from your grandmother who was born in Berlin. Most of those stories were about what she was not allowed to do, right? I mean, can you talk about her experiences in Nazi Germany and how that compares to the experiences of the American South?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I write frequently about my grandparents' experiences during the war, but I typically write about my paternal grandmother, Mashala, who is a survivor of the camps and death marches and labor camps and is from Lithuania. But for this particular story, what I kept coming back to was my maternal grandmother, Oma, who came here right before Kristallnacht and so, you know, escaped kind of the worst of you know, concentration camps, labor camps, death marches, you know, that piece of it. But unlike my other grandparents who kind of overnight had the realities in their countries changed by German occupation, Oma grew up in Berlin at a time where it was very slow. Every single month, there was something new that she wasn't allowed to do. And she was of the age where she understood last year, I could go to the zoo. This year, I can't. And so, she has so often spoke about, you know, what that meant and just feeling this overwhelming claustrophobia of not being allowed to do anything, seeing signs everywhere, no Jews, no dogs. Does that make me a dog? Why am I being treated like an animal? My grandmother, she came to this country. Thanksgiving is a religious holiday for her. She is like the most patriotic American there is. She's so grateful to have been taken in here. And I think for someone like her, and I read her the article and she was, you know, basically saying this to me, weeping, for someone like her, this kind of incident is so disturbing because she came to this country believing our struggles have been understood here, we've been embraced, you know, people understand what we've gone through, don't want it to happen again. And so I think for this idea that, you know, millions of Americans would hear on live TV, this idea that somehow the Holocaust wasn't about race, just for her felt like this assault in a way.
0: Whoopi also said something on the Colbert show
1: about the Klan, which you, in your post column, called a bit bizarre. So, Whoopi said if she and a Jewish friend were on the street and they saw the Klan coming, that she would run. But her Jewish friend, I think, you know, she was saying hypothetically, not like a specific person she had in mind this Jewish friend would probably not run because nine times out of 10, they would get passed over and they would be fine. And I think what she was trying to get at is that every single person can look at Whoopi and say, okay, we see that you're black, but not every single person can look at every single Jew and say, we see that you're Jewish. But what this just betrayed a a real ignorance of is that when you look at Holocaust literature, if you ever talk to a survivor, you understand how many times a day on the trains, Germans would force Jewish men to take down their pants to check for circumcision. You understood how many times Jewish women dyed their hair blonde because they were so afraid that just having dark hair, having curly hair, would be enough for someone to pull them aside. When you understand anti Semitism, you understand that anti Semites have a way of smelling Jews. It's the same, they sniff us out, they know who we are, they just can tell. And we live with that fear in the same way that any other minority that looks different does. And this idea that we don't just felt like, why are you speaking for us? Have you asked any of us? That's not true. And to me, that part was, it was bizarre and um, it was hurtful.
0: You also said that the result of approaching anti-Semitism this way is that you understand it not through the victim's point of view, but rather through the perpetrator's point of view. Can you explain what you meant
1: by that? Yeah, look, I think Barry Weiss has written about this really well. Her line goes something like this, you know, we all recognize anti-Semitism when it's with, you know, people carrying tiki torches, chanting Jews will not replace us, but we don't often recognize it when the perpetrators are not white nationalists. I think there is this tendency today to focus on discrimination and racism and act as if it, it all comes in one form. And that's not true. And so when you center anti Semitism and conversations about the Jewish experience, not on the Jews and what they're experiencing, but actually on, oh, a white supremacist being responsible or white supremacy being responsible, what you actually lose is the fact that Jews faced anti Semitism from all peoples. You know, we can face anti-Semitism from people who are white, from people who are black. It's not about what you look like. It's about the fact that anti-Semitism pops up everywhere. And when I was at The View, we covered the Jersey City shooting. And one of the things that, you know, stood out to me as I was reflecting back on this was that this particular incident, the perpetrators happened to be black. And when we were covering it on the show... Joy Behar, bemoaning the attack, you know, condemning it, saying it was terrible, said something like, you know, we really have to do something about white supremacy. But in that moment, the attackers were not white supremacists. They just, they happened to not be. And it felt like, again, this, and it was unintentional. It had happened hours before. It's a live show. You know, I'm not, I'm not being overly critical here. But my point is that there's this default assumption that hatred against us has to look like hatred against, you know, another minority group. And if it doesn't, it's not worth interrogating and exploring. And that's deeply troubling because what we know about anti-Semitism is that it mutates and that it constantly evolves. And so if we're going to determine that we're only going to recognize anti-Semitism when it comes in one form, what we end up ensuring is that we're going to ignore at least as much other anti-Semitism. Well, let me ask you
0: this. Do you believe Whoopi Goldberg's comments were anti-Semitic? Some people accused her
1: of that. Do you think that was fair? Look, I think why this gets complicated is because intentionality matters. I don't think that, you know, Whoopi woke up in the morning and thought, wow, I really hate those Jews. How can I insult them? You know, that's not her. But I also think we live in a time and a moment in a culture that does not always include intentionality in accusations of racism and anti-Semitism and other forms of discrimination. I think the idea that the Holocaust was about two groups of white people fighting each other is anti-Semitic. Now, I think that, again, this story has to be about more than Whoopi because Whoopi is repeating things that are out there. And so for me, the bigger problem and the bigger fight here is not, you know, let's pinpoint the precise problems with what Whoopi said and, and how Whoopi felt. I'm not in her head. I do believe, you know, she's sorry for hurts she's caused. And I truly think she doesn't understand why what she said was hurtful. That's the problem. It's that she's regurgitating something that's out there. It's that even though we've all talked about why it's so hurtful, I don't believe she understands that yet. She
0: also has a platform where she reaches millions of uh, Americans every day. Um, I, I found it fascinating that her comments really dominated the news cycle on on Tuesday when there was so much going on. That said, we've been here before. I mean, a couple of years ago, Nick Cannon echoed some very very troubling anti-Semitic tropes about the Rothschilds controlling a central banking system. He also apologized. He also suffered professional consequences. But it didn't stop there. I mean, he engaged in a very public process of atonement and education with AJC's Rabbi Noam Marins. He read Barry Weiss's book on how to fight anti-Semitism and other titles, too. And he he very publicly changed his mind. And I'm just curious, I mean, what was the proper response here? Was suspension— The answer to resolving this controversy? Or is that effectively banning her just like the graphic novel they were discussing that led to all of this?
1: Yeah. So I want to say a couple things here. First of all, I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe in it principally. I also think it doesn't work. But I do think that there is a distinction between firing someone and suspending someone for two weeks. Is it what I would have done? No. But... I do think it means something to the Jewish community, who often bemoans, I think accurately, that anti-Semitism seems to be the one form of hatred today that people continuously get away with that doesn't suffer the same consequences. And so even though it's not the decision I would have made, I do think it sends a welcome signal to the Jewish community from Kim Godwin, who I think is a real ally, that this stuff is taken seriously and ABC wants to do better. I think the other complicating factor here that people don't really understand, because it's kind of inside baseball, is that the view is under ABC News' umbrella as part of the news division. And so while it is an opinion show, everything is, you know, really very seriously fact-checked and we have to go with news standards and it's not a place where people can just you know, invent things. And so we do have a really rigorous process again, but via checking things, polls have to be airworthy. I mean, we're under the news division. And so I think that kind of adds another layer here where ABC is kind of saying to themselves, well, this is part of our news programming. And this is something that, you know, we as a company deny. It's not factual and we can't stand by it. And it can't be something that our news platform is putting out there. So I think that also probably factored in to the decision there. And, you know, it's not sexy. It's inside baseball. It's not about cancellation, but I think that's kind of the true reality. In terms of, you know, what would be effective? Look, I agree with you. I think this is a moment to educate and telling someone they shouldn't have a platform because they're wrong. It might feel meaningful in the moment, but it doesn't actually achieve any aims. So, you know, if I'm the queen of ABC and I have access to all their production teams and the funding and you know just every arm there what I would say is let's take the view to Poland let's do a view shoot in Auschwitz let's bring Whoopi to the camps and do a tour and have an episode where Americans come along with the hosts on a journey of seeing the camps I mean you're talking about a news division with massive resources I'm sure they have staffers on the ground in Poland it's not a big reach It would take two days of filming, it would be incredible. So to me, that would have been the most meaningful response. And it would have also said, ABC is doing the real work to actually explore why this ideology exists in the first place. To me, the thing that's most troubling is Whoopi, who I again believe is well-intentioned and sincerely doesn't wanna be hurting anyone. In her apology, the next morning on the show, she said, I misspoke, but she didn't misspeak. She said what she meant to say, And it's a problem that she meant what she said because it's wrong. So to me, the slap on the wrist of we don't want you to have your platform is much less meaningful and much less effective than ABC saying, we want to help educate you on why this was wrong. And we want to use our time, our treasure, our talent, our platform to also educate your viewers who maybe now are misinformed because of what you said about why it was wrong. Wow.
0: The idea of filming The View at Auschwitz gave me chills. I would watch that. (laughs) I would definitely watch that. So that's a fascinating idea. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experience and perspective on this matter.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. February 1st marked the yard site for journalist Daniel Pearl, who was brutally murdered by terrorists in Pakistan 20 years ago. The 38-year-old American journalist was on his way to what he thought was an interview with a Pakistani religious leader in Karachi. But before he reached his destination, Daniel Pearl was kidnapped by terrorists. In a 2014 interview, His mother, Ruth, said on the night Daniel was kidnapped, she dreamt he was scared and in trouble. When she awoke, she immediately sent her son an email. He never replied. The terrorists released photos of Daniel handcuffed with a gun at his head, holding up a newspaper. His family's public pleas for his release were to no avail. Weeks later, the terrorists released a video of Daniel's beheading. The title? The Slaughter of Spy Journalist, The Jew, Daniel Pearl. Among his last words, my father's Jewish, my mother's Jewish, I'm Jewish. At the time of Daniel Pearl's murder, I was a graduate student studying journalism and religion. I already knew I lacked the courage to do the kind of intrepid reporting Daniel Pearl pursued. Based in Mumbai, India, as the South Asia bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal, Daniel had moved to Karachi after the September 11th terrorist attacks to investigate the motives of Islamist terrorism. I too wanted to understand how religion could motivate. I had grown up not advertising my Judaism because as I saw it, people didn't understand any faith but their own. And sometimes even that was not the case. I wanted to engage in and inspire meaningful conversations so I and other young Jews or Muslims or Latter-day Saints would be less inclined to hide that part of who they were. But when I learned about Daniel's death and his last words, it renewed my reluctance to tell people I was Jewish. As a religion reporter, I could continue to keep that part of me hidden in the name of objectivity. After all, it didn't matter. It didn't make a difference in my reporting, just as it did not make a difference in Daniel's reporting. I was a journalist and only a journalist. That's all that mattered. But Daniel Pearl, he was so much more than a journalist. He was a musician, a husband, a soon-to-be father, a brother, a friend to so many, and yes, he was Jewish. He also was a son. And in addition to remembering Daniel Pearl, I want to say a few words about his mother, Ruth, who died last summer. You see, this was not the first time she or her family had experienced anti-Semitic violence. In June 1941, at the age of five, Ruth looked out the window of her home in Baghdad and saw mobs marching through the streets, a pogrom known as the Farhud, in which scores of Iraqi Jews were killed. The events she witnessed haunted her for the rest of her life. Thankfully, Ruth's testimony is part of a collection of interviews about the Jewish experience in North Africa and the Middle East collected by the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation. The last time Ruth saw her son, he was walking away from her carrying his violin on his shoulder. That memory I have of Danny, she said, is the essence of who he was. Music was a source of hope. Today, the Daniel Pearl Foundation sponsors concerts, journalism fellowships, and awards. The most recent winner of the Daniel Pearl Prize for Courage and Integrity and Journalism was Barry Weiss, the former New York Times columnist and author of How to Fight Antisemitism*. In bestowing the award, Daniel's father, Dr. Judea Pearl, explained that it originally had been intended for journalists who faced physical danger for their reporting, like his son, But Barry and the circumstances we all face now redefined its purpose. Over the past 20 years, our family has tried to play down the anti-Semitic component of Danny's tragedy, Dr. Pearl said. But the recent upsurge in anti-Semitism, he said, made us recognize that if we want to be true to our mission of rolling back the hatred that took Danny's life, we must first expose its undercurrents, analyze its anatomy, and understand its circuitry with scientific precision. Barry has done it for us. In other words, being Jewish matters. No matter what some entertainers might say, we can't hide it, we shouldn't have to. I am so grateful to Ruth Pearl for sharing her story and Daniel Pearl's story with the world. May their memories continue to be a blessing. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at pod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag People of the Pod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.